enough for us to make some kind of argument. I have included in the handouts a reference there to an article written by Wayne Jackson. There's an excerpt there in a little uh, box in the handout. You're welcome to read that on your own. I would encourage you get a copy of that article. You can get online and get it. If you don't have access to the Internet, I'll be glad to print it off for you if you're interested in having it. But uh, Brother Wayne Jackson gets a little bit more uh, deep in it than I ever want to. And there's also some other uh, writings that you can get into and say, I would say, you're asking for the Cackleman opinion. Uh, I would say it's not conclusive that this is alcoholic wine. And I think, I think trying to argue that is a, a faulty premise. Uh, I think there's a lot of other reasons why we could say it's not alcoholic. Uh, but it's not conclusive one way or the other, to be honest, from the text itself. You have to go into more logical argument about would Christ do this or would, would, uh, what does it make sense about this or what do other passages of Scripture have to say about the wine. So I don't want to get into too lengthy of a discussion this morning on that. I would encourage you to, to dig a little deeper yourselves on this uh, topic and see what the Scriptures have to say. What I want to focus on is what Christ did here, what he did. So throw out the whole thing of whether or not this is alcoholic wine or not, because in essence, it really doesn't matter as to Christ's motivation and the purpose behind why he did what he did here in this passage. And and what the scriptures say to us about this miracle of Christ, I think give us several, uh, several constructive and important lessons for us to consider as Christians without having to try and dissect and get, get stuck in the weeds, so to speak, or, or do some rabbit chasing uh, with respect to whether this was alcoholic wine or not. What you see in this passage first, I want to point out, this is the first miracle of Jesus. Now, the, the scripture is very specific in saying that this was the first. This was the beginning of Christ's miracles, it says in John chapter 2 and verse 11. Why is that important? It's important if you start understanding and talking to other religions other denominations in this world, because there are some that espouse the fact that God, through Christ, or Christ, when he was even a child, performed miracles. There are some apocryphal writings, and I don't want to get into it this morning. I think that's chasing rabbits, but this is a good point, I think, to say to you. There are apocryphal writings accepted by some denominations as being true and, and honest and right and, and um, being inspired writings from God that actually say that Christ as a boy performed miracles. Well, that directly contradicts what John chapter 2 says about that issue. In Cana of Galilee there at the wedding feast before his mother and before the disciples that were following him at that point in time, he performed his first miracle. First. It was the beginning. That word the beginning means there was nothing beforehand until at this point in time. So Christ, at this point in time, performed his first miracle. That's why we say this is the first miracle, because it is. It's not just the first recorded miracle. This is the first miracle. And you see that contextually as you look in John chapter 2. Of course, he's concerned at first. His mother comes to him, and when his mother confronts him and he says, hey, we're out of wine, he pretty much says, woman, what, what does that have to do with me? You know, why, my hour has not yet come. Now, I think at that point in time, it's possible, and again, I'm speculating a little bit with respect to the text. I don't think it's, it's too much to speculate that Christ did not seem to intend to start his miraculous signs and wonders at this point in time, because I don't think he would have responded to his mother if he, like this if he was. So there was some intention on Christ to begin his miraculous signs to confirm who he was and what he was saying. But it doesn't appear that it was supposed to start in Cana of Galilee necessarily until his mother, I guess, jumped into the fray. We all know when when mama ain't happy, nobody's happy, right? 
I don't think that was much different with Mary. Mary was still human. And I think as you look at the context of this passage, when, when Mary came to him with this issue and this problem, uh, there does not seem to be necessarily a request here, if you look. There is not a question of, of Jesus, can you help? Or Jesus, can you solve this problem? Uh, Mary really just came to him and said, we've got a problem. It says, they have no wine. And of course, Jesus took that as being a request, I believe, because of his response. And he said, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His response, I think, is very interesting as you think about his response to Mary uh, here in the passage of Scripture. uh, And the... um, the response indicates, first of all, somewhat of a distance between him and his mother. That's not the, the typical mother word, by the way, when you call your mother woman. Um, and that is somewhat of a, I mean, it's not necessarily derogatory. Don't get me, I'm not saying he's been derogatory to Mary. But it's not indicating or indicative of that familial relationship necessarily by calling her this and addressing her as this. It's kind of as though he is, um, he's making the point that, you know, I'm going to, treat you with respect, but yet you don't dictate things to me uh, in a respectful tone. That's what I'm into. That's what I infer from this comment here. What, what does this have to do with us? And us there, of course, is, I believe, indicative of Christ and his disciples. Because in the preceding verse, of course, it says there in verse 2 that both Jesus and his disciples were invited. So what does this have to do with us? Or it could be the us of being Christ and his mother. What does that have to do with us? It's not our wedding. You know, but evidently it's some embarrassment there because they have run out of wine. And the, the last phrase, though, that last little sentence is what I think is most important. And if you want to underline or highlight anything in that response to Mary, it would be my hour has not yet come. And in, in fact, in there, it seems to be indicative of the fact that Christ had plans, of course, to have his hour to approach. But this may not have been what he had planned. Now, that, does that mean he didn't do anything? No, it does not. Uh, he responded to his mother, I think, like any good son would. When mama comes to you with a problem, of course, us guys like to fix things. I'm not sure Christ is much different. He was a man after all. And in fact, in this situation, I believe he had compassion in his heart for the situation and circumstance. He was a guest at this wedding. And so as being a guest, of course, he would have had some type of a relationship with whoever was there at the wedding. He had sympathy for them, and then he could perform this miracle. Uh, the context, of course, of this as well has to do with uh, the calling of the disciples. Real quickly, if you look at the preceding verses, this was likely the day after Jesus called Philip and Nathaniel in chapter 1, verse 43. But I believe more than anything, this passage shows an incredible faith of Mary, the mother of Jesus. There are other passages in the New Testament reflective on her attitude sometimes with Christ and trying to pull him away from things or, or asking him not to do things. And, and he makes statements pretty much saying that, hey, you take the back seat to my mission in this world. You know, I, I understand and I think he respected and loved her. Uh, you see that on the cross, I believe, as he's trying to take care of his own mother. I don't think there was a lack of love whatsoever for Mary. But what you do see in this passage, you see Mary's incredible faith in her son, Jesus Christ. And I think that is phenomenal. When you look at what the statement she made in verse 5 underscores and says, it says volumes without me even having to really uh, elaborate much on it. She turns to the servants and says, whatever he says to do, do it. Why? She knew what he was capable of. She knew who he was. You remember back and reflect back on Mary And her knowledge of who Christ was in her very womb, she knew this is the Son of God. 
She had no questions, no qualms, no disbelief. I'm sure she still had frustrations with having to raise the Son of God as a child. I'm not sure how that all worked out. We don't really see much in the Scriptures about his childhood. But we do see Jesus was known to Mary for who he was. And I think she had no lack of belief, no lack of faith in what her son could do. And in fact, this message, I think, to the servants shows the incredible faith that Mary would have had uh, in Christ and in his ability. And this, this miracle here, real quickly, is a miracle of what I would say transformation and not creation. It is a miracle that shows that Christ is able to use something ordinary to transform it into something extraordinary, something more than what it was. And that's what you see, the transformative power of, of Christ over nature indicates that he can take something that's already there and make it so much better in this passage of Scripture. The obviously water turning into the wine, the wine then was called the best or the better wine. It was seen as something of value. It was seen something of good, uh, of some type of a nature to it that people looked at it and said, wow, why did you say this until now? We should have gotten this stuff first. It was good. And God and Christ took water and made it into something even better. Brother Lon. Yes, sir. It does. And I didn't go back and look at the original uh, Greek on that to see what Brother Lon says is what does that have to do with us? Some versions actually have the word you or the in there, a King James version or a new King James. I'm not sure which ones those may be. I didn't go back and look. That would change the context somewhat as well. I think that probably would go to the latter argument that I made a moment ago as though, hey, this isn't your event. This isn't our event here. What does that have to do with you? You know, it's someone else's. Um, but I think Mary, being the kind-hearted woman she probably was, was trying to look after whoever wedding it was, was trying to help. And she knew, I think, from her response here to uh, the servant, she knew that she had a solution to the problem. And how many of us, you know, kind of think of that as well? We've got a solution. Let's try and insert ourselves to try and help out and help those who are in need, those who are uh, in a place of want. Uh, I think that's what you kind of see here with Mary here. And Jesus was able to transform water into wine. It was also a, a parable of joy, so to speak. It, this, this whole event, of course, was the marital, marriage feast. Uh, there was a lot of joy there. But directly contrasting here, this, marriage, uh, this miracle of Christ turning water into wine, think back on the miracle of, of uh, Moses turning water into something else. He turned water into blood. Water into blood. Again, there's a miracle that Christ performed in, in Exodus uh, getting his people out of Pharaoh's land and out of bondage. And, and what you see there is that is almost, well, it is, not almost, it is a miracle of destruction or of damnation or of judgment on those people. The whole reason God used water turning it into blood was in fact a way to show Pharaoh that if they did not allow the people to leave Israel, they would be condemned, they would be judged appropriately, they would face the wrath of God. Here it's very different, very different. The miracle of turning water into wine was seen and is perceived and accepted as a miracle of joy because they were able to be joyous at this. Whether it's at the feast and those people who may not have had a clue where the, the wine had come from. It could have been Mary who, who was joyous and able to help out her friends or family, whoever it was at this wedding. It was joyous because of what the effect was upon the, the disciples. 
The disciples what? Believed. Believed. If you look contextually, as I said a moment ago, this miracle likely happened right after Philip and Nathaniel were called to follow Christ. More than likely, all 12 apostles weren't present at this miracle, by the way. If you look at the context and the timing, uh, they may not have all been there. Uh, but his disciples were. That could have very well included Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. Uh, you've got probably Philip and Nathaniel, maybe a couple of others that had been called already in the, in the chronological order. Maybe not all 12. But regardless, when they went and they saw what Christ did, they believed. And so it's truly a miracle of joy because it's not something that is, is casting judgment on somebody else, but it's actually casting hope and giving them the hope that they are following after this Christ, the Savior of the world. And in fact, they would be able to carry this on and make a much deeper belief, a much deeper faith. And because Christ provided for them at the feast, he provided not just food, but he provided faith for those who would listen and who would consider the points and, and the, the, this wonderful miracle, this supernatural, this extraordinary sign that Christ used to provide faith uh, for those who are around him, especially the disciples. Second. I'm trying to go to the next, there it is, next slide. Feeding of the 5,000. We're going to zoom through this one hopefully pretty quickly. The feeding of the 5,000 uh, is the only parable that is mentioned in all four gospel accounts. Just a little, a little factoid there for you. If you've got any quizzical or you're doing Bible trivia, the only miracle mentioned in all four gospel accounts, here you go, the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, every other miracle is, is mentioned in just obviously one, two, or three of the, of the books. It varies depending on which miracle you're talking about. John seems to have some that are much more unique uh, than the other gospel writers do. And that could get into somewhat of a critique of the gospel accounts and the timing of when they were written. But regardless of that, what you see is the feeding of the 5,000 is symmetrical among the gospel accounts. There's four different accounts. I've chosen, of course, to look at the text in Mark chapter 6. I encourage you, if you did not do your assignment for last week, to read the other accounts. Look at them, compare them to see uh, what they hold for you because they do give somewhat of a, a different Detail. I like to, to describe it like this. And I even do this in court sometimes when I was doing jury trials. And you got different witnesses up there. And the different witnesses are describing the same incident or the same story or the same circumstances. But yet they kind of give different details and they vary just slightly. I call it perspective or vantage point. And you kind of see that uh, as you read the different gospel accounts of a miracle. You have different vantage points of who they are and the characters uh, that are involved and what they do and what Christ has said and how it all goes together. But if you look at all the accounts, they, they jive together. Uh, they just may uh, provide additional details or descriptions that you may not have in, in one gospel or another. Look with me, Mark chapter 6, verses 34 through 44. It really starts in verse 30. I kind of ran out of space on the handout. That's why I cut it down to, to verse 34. If you look contextually here, the individual, or, or really Christ and his disciples, were trying to uh, really kind of just get away. Uh, they, they went ashore in verse 34, it says, and they saw a great crowd. If you look before that and see what occurred before they had gone, gone away, um, verse 30 talks about that the apostles gathered together and they reported everything they had done and they had taught. Uh, John had been beheaded by Herod 
And so at that point in time, of course, people were more concerned about safety and welfare. Christ, of course, gathered his disciples together. Uh, In verse 31, he said, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. They had been out teaching. They had been going out and and going among the people. And uh, so Christ and his disciples, uh, more than likely his apostles and probably others, uh, went away in a boat to a secluded place in verse 32. Well, Verse 33 chronicles the fact that this multitude of people who had been following Christ and his disciples saw them leaving. Of course, it's kind of like a rock star mentality, right? This multitude wanted to follow them. I mean, so you got this mob, this multitude of people going after and wanting to be with Christ. They go out on a boat and go to a secluded place, and all of a sudden, the multitude starts showing up there too. They can't get away from them. They can't get away. And so Christ, of course, in verse 34, uh, chronicles the beginning of what Jesus said and saw Uh, whenever they actually uh, got there on the shore. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and, and buy themselves something to eat. But he, he being Christ, answered them and said, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, we've five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. He said a blessing and he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. I don't know what you would think if you saw this. I I myself would probably be uh, so totally, completely amazed that I probably wouldn't necessarily know what to do. Um, Christ in this situation, I think, as you see, uh, could not help but feel compassion for the people whenever he saw them. And if you read the other versions and the other, I mean, the other gospel accounts, you see several different things that, that mention, they mention about Christ and his interaction with them. In this gospel account in Mark, you see that when they went over there, Christ saw them, had compassion on them. Well, it says that he taught them. Other, other gospel accounts say that he actually healed the sick that were among them. And then you see him ultimately saying, you know, let's give them something to eat because it was late. They had been with him for a long time period. Uh, they wanted to provide for them. Uh, Jesus himself, I think, had a plan. He had this in his mind all along. And you read other gospel accounts and you'll see this plan. And I want to kind of briefly look at, if we can, one of the other ones, just to kind of point out God's plan for him. And I think you see in John chapter 6, the fact that he had this plan in place, ready to roll, uh, but he wanted to test his own disciples here as to what they wanted to do and how they would react. You see in John chapter 6, uh, the incorporation of several other characters. Uh, my first sermon I ever preached was on the Apostle Andrew. And I actually used this passage of Scripture. I uh, still so got the note cards at home somewhere uh, with this lesson. And this is one of those first sermons that I would preach and, and teach and talk about Andrew being a... By the way, if you ever want to get somebody to teach lessons, character lessons are pretty easy to develop. So that's why we usually do that first. And so I made a couple points about Andrew. And one of the points that I made was Andrew was good at bringing people to Jesus. 
Because if you think back, who did Andrew bring to Jesus? Well, he brought back one, his brother, Simon Peter. We all think of Peter being the stalwart uh, leader of the Lord's church. In fact, he was in Acts chapter 2. We see what kind of a leader he was in the first sermon that he preached there and in the establishment of the church. We see the role that he as well as the Apostle Paul had really as being some of the primary leaders in the New Testament church. But really, Peter would never have come to Christ if it had not been for his brother Andrew. And here in John chapter 6, you also see someone else that Andrew actually brought to Christ. And he brought him, the little boy, with five loaves and two fish. And so you see the character of Andrew presented in, in, that, in the, the, the uh, gospel account in John chapter 6. You also see Philip. And I think Philip here speaks a little bit more to the, the, the purpose and the plan that Christ had with this miracle here. And he already had planned to show. You look there and let's look at verses 5 and 6. And it says that, of course, he lifted up his eyes and sees a large crowd that was coming. And, and Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And verse 6 says this, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Of course, Philip again answered him, said 200 denarii wouldn't be worth, that's not enough. And if you remember, a denarii, by the way, it was the amount of one day's wage for an unskilled worker. So you're talking about, you know, Philip's response is, is, is Jesus, 200 days of pay would not be enough to feed all these people. That's how many people were there. And he's saying that we could not, even if we could get the money, getting the bread and getting the food was another whole question, whether we could even find that in the city. Uh, But that much money, that much food would not be enough to feed the people. And you see here, Jesus already had a plan to show the people his power over nature, to show him that he could provide for their needs, that that this miracle would give him the, the proof that he would need to be able to, to say, I am indeed the Son of God. You need to listen to what I've got to say. And he had this plan already. He was testing his disciples at first to ask him to go buy the bread. Then obviously you see what ultimately he had in plan all along. He took the loaves, he took the fish, and five loaves and two fishes somehow filled enough of the bellies of 5,000 plus people. And they still had 12 baskets left over. You also see in this parable, I think, of the fact that Jesus is able to take and make order out of chaos. I can't imagine, um, and Monica won't let me get involved in politics right now, so I'm not sure I'll ever imagine it, I guess, of, of being in front of and having thousands and thousands and thousands of people wanting to follow after you. Uh, I, I don't know really how that feels. I'm not sure I ever will. I'm not sure I really want to some days, honestly. So I don't know what Christ was really feeling that day whenever he was having 5,000 plus people following him around. I mean, that's a large amount of people. In fact, it's so much, so chaotic that he wanted to get away in seclusion with his disciples just so they could rest. They were so exhausted. They were so tired of having to help and to be there and to teach and, and all the things they were doing for the people. They just needed a rest. They needed a little bit of relaxation. And so the question really becomes there is, is, uh, you know, what are we to do? Because these people won't leave us alone. <laughs> and you see the chaos that, that just kind of encapsulated them through his ministry. And that's not a bad thing. And I say chaos sometimes can be actually a very good thing because out of chaos, especially if order comes, it can show the people truly who they can look to for guidance and for leadership and for help, for provisions, so to speak. And that's what you see here in this miracle of Christ as he feeds the 5,000 is that Christ is able to take all this, uh, this chaotic disorder and create methodical and purposeful order of the things that he was doing. 
the, the points that he was trying to make, the, the idea and the fact that he was trying to encourage these individuals to listen to him, what better way than to show them how much he loves them and cares for them. He had compassion for them. And I love that phrase, and that's why I used the, the passage in Mark 6, because he looked out to them, and this is the only gospel account that says it, he had compassion on them because they appeared as sheep without a shepherd. Now, I truly don't believe this means that they didn't know where to go. I think the people knew where to go. I think they knew geographically where they were. They weren't necessarily lost in that respect. As I said, Jesus looks much deeper than the surface. So as he looked out and saw there's more than 5,000 individuals, these men and then the women, of course, that weren't even counted, following after him in this multitude, he saw them lost, I believe, spiritually. He saw them lost and in need of direction in their spiritual and in their emotional lives and the idea that they needed some order from all the chaos that they had in their own lives. He saw them truly as sheep without a shepherd, not necessarily wandering around aimlessly because they didn't know where they were in the pasture. They didn't know where they were in life because they didn't have that deeper understanding and meaning of who God is. So the miracles of Jesus, of course, were used to provide hope and to provide faith for those who were wandering around aimlessly, those who may have been lost like sheep without a shepherd. God wanted them to see through his only son the fact that he cared for them, and once they, they understood that he cared for them, they would listen to him. Brother Wayne. Yes, great, great point. You're, yeah, you're reading my mind, Wayne. I, was, I, I doubt I'll even get there because the bell's going to ring probably in about two minutes. But Wayne's right. If you look at verse 12 there of that, that, that miracle. They were instructed by Christ to go around and do what? Pick up the leftovers. Pick up the leftovers, y'all. Well, we're not going to waste anything. And I think that proves a, a great point about what, the way Christ uses things. He uses everything. And he uses individuals too. Look, did Christ go out himself and to spread this? No, he actually gave it to his disciples and said for his disciples to take it among the people. He asked his disciples to go and to collect the leftovers, those that were remaining. He got his disciples to, to help him in this ministry to these people. You know, the, the phrase is really said nowadays, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. You ever heard that? And you see that more than anything in this passage of Scripture. Jesus Christ cared for those people. How do we know? How do we know he cared? It wasn't just that he would ultimately die for them, y'all. That's not it. That's not all that Jesus showed to them. He showed to them that he cared when their bellies were grumbling because they were hungry. And it wasn't that they couldn't afford it necessarily. It's not that they, they may not have had the resources or something back at home to be able to make some dinner for themselves. It's the fact that they cared so much about following after him. They had given all that up, followed after him, and he cared for them so much that he didn't want them to go away from himself and be hungry. They wanted Christ, God, through his son, wanted them to know that if they needed something, Christ would be there for them. And that's what you see ultimately here, bringing the chaos, I mean, the order from the chaos. Christ is the one that is allowing us to be able to, um, 
Look to Him for those provisions that we need. To, to look to Him to, to have all those things that, that we need to survive and those things that we need to be able to endure all the issues and the problems that we might have. Now, there are some lessons, I think. Real quickly, as an aside note, if you look at the, the feeding of the 4,000, there's not much difference between the 4,000 and 5,000. I put a little blurb in your, your handout about that. There's a difference in the number of fish. Uh, there's seven fish, and it says a few... Uh, I think a few loaves or something like that, I believe is the phrasing that's used there. Not an exact number like we have in the feeding of the 5,000. We got five loaves, two fish. Every account says that. Uh, 4,000 is also different in the amount of people that were fed, obviously. It's also different, uh, if you look at it, uh, the, uh, the passage of Scripture there talking about the feeding of the 4,000 also give you uh, the difference there of being... Um, uh, no, 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 hold on. I just lost my head when that... Oh, the number of leftover baskets is different. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not 12. Uh, it's less than 12 there in the feeding of the 4,000. And I think what's also ironic with respect to that is the apostles seem to have the same kind of doubt here. And the feeding of the 4,000 occurred after the feeding of the 5,000. So it's kind of like Jesus said, hey, where are we going to feed these people? And they're like, well, we don't know. And they're like, okay, they didn't remember what he had just done. So it kind of shows a little bit of humanity, I think, on the side of the apostles as well. I didn't get to the the lessons here, the learning from Christ's mercy. Take those uh, handouts home with you. Look at the class assignments as well for next week. I would encourage you. I didn't take any kind of a hand-raising of who actually fulfilled their uh, class assignments this week. But look at those. Reflect. Uh, apply the lesson, if you would. There's three recommendations there for applying. I would say two of them, I think, are, are, are... Somewhat uh, encouraging for us is one is to invite someone to come to church service. Very simple. You just ask if they want to come. That's why I encourage you to do. Reach out to somebody else uh, to do that and and have someone involved or try to encourage them to have Christ involved in their life. And the third one's really neat, I think, as I encourage you to apply this lesson is do something for somebody that they're not able to do for themselves this week. I encourage you to try and think about that. Make a phone call. See what you can do to help those that may be hurting, those that are on our sick list, or those that that may just need a visit. If there's something you can do for them, let's try and reach out and do that. The preparation for next week, we're going to look at healing the sick from a distance. Uh, There are two parables. uh, Two parables. I did it again. Two miracles of Jesus. Two miracles. Dealing with Christ, healing the sick from a distance. He didn't even go lay his hands on them. He didn't go and meet them. The nobleman's son and the centurion's servant. Look at those miracles. I think it speaks volumes for it. And I got a couple of questions to prod your study there. I appreciate your kind attention this morning. I will see you hopefully.